Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. The U.S. Supreme Court just this morning blocked President Trump's efforts to end the DACA program. And we'll analyze the decision in our 10 a.m. hour. But first, social justice educator Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, is one of a number of books on race topping bestseller lists. As many people seek to educate themselves amid protests against racism and racist policing. In the book, she invites white people to examine their role in upholding systemic racism and to confront the defensiveness or fragility she says they can exhibit when challenged on their ideas about race. That's all next. Join us after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, is currently number one on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction. It came out in 2018, but is getting renewed attention in this moment when the nation is grappling more openly with racism. DiAngelo's research is in whiteness studies and critical discourse analysis, tracing how whiteness is reproduced in everyday narratives. She's been a consultant, educator, and facilitator for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. Welcome, Robin DiAngelo. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, I guess the place to begin is uh, if we can sort of uh, look at this idea of white fragility and what it means and why uh, there's so much defensiveness, as you see it, on the part of so many white people. Uh, I guess it boils down to triggering anger and fear and guilt when you bring up questions of racism or white privilege mainly, and that in itself probably would make a lot of white people indignant as a generalization. Yes. Um, well, the fragility aspect speaks to how little it takes to cause uh, so many white people to erupt in that kind of defensiveness and anger. And for many white people, just using the term white people, uh, proceeding as if we could know anything about anyone just because they're white will cause that, uh, what I think of as a meltdown. But it's not fragile at all in its impact because it marshals behind it the weight of history and legal authority and institutional control. And in that way, intentionally or not, it functions as a kind of policing uh, people and, and black people in particular in not making those challenges, in not going there with us, lest they risk more punishment. It uh, all too often, unfortunately, gets worse when they try to talk to us about what, we're, what they're experiencing, about our unaware assumptions and, and behaviors. And so, you know, that kind of causes them to just endure it rather than take the risk. So when uh, someone says, I'm colorblind, I treat all people equal, uh, they're only self-deceiving themselves in, in your judgment? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, the research in implicit bias is very, very clear. Uh, yes, we see color. Yes, it has meaning, profound meaning uh, in this society. And when white people say that, I, I just have to let, let you, them know it's not convincing. And it's absolutely not convincing uh, to black people. I, I'm going to share, Erin uh, Trent Johnson is a black woman I often co-lead with. And she says, you know, when I hear white people say that, that. What I'm thinking is, this is a dangerous white person. This is a white person who's going to deny my reality, who will have no critical thinking about race, who will have no self-awareness about how their own race shapes uh, their experiences in the world. This is not conveying uh, that this person is a safe person. Is that why you've come out, for example, and said that, uh, and uh, by your own admission, you converted from being what you describe as a classic white liberal, but you say uh, progressives are perhaps, uh, or those who consider themselves progressive politically, the most dangerous uh, when it comes to racism and where black people are concerned, even more so, for example, than uh, stone cold white supremacists who want to eliminate black people? Well, a couple of things, of course, first, I, I 
I'm actually still a, a very well-meaning white progressive. Uh, I just am a, a bit more aware, have, have uh, definitely more skills uh, in navigating conversations about race. And we need to think about the word dangerous a little bit differently. Like absolutely white nationalism is on the rise. Absolutely black people are uh, being murdered in front of our eyes. We, we see this. And, and I'm not talking about that kind of dangerous, but I'm talking about in the everyday. So in an everyday workplace, you know, and, and most workplaces are overwhelmingly white. So you just have a few co-workers of color, you know, odds are they're not interacting on a daily basis with the Richard Spencers of the world, you know, the, the explicit avowed white nationalists. They're interacting with me uh, and other people like me, well-intended, well-meaning white people who can't answer the question what it means to be white. Um, you know, I recently did a talk for a, a large organization, about 50,000 employees worldwide. And before and after my talk, they showed a video of some of the uh, Black people who work there sharing how exhausting it is to be Black in an overwhelmingly white organization and how often they go home just <laughs> fatigued and having to decide if it's worth it to try to try to talk about what they're experiencing there. You know, that's me. That's that's me and you. And um, it, it's not the extremists. It, so it's, we need to separate bias from racism then? Uh, are, are those two words synonymous to you? No, they're not synonymous, but they are connected. Absolutely everyone has bias. There is no human objectivity. Uh, and most of the bias is unconscious, not conscious. So implicit. Racism is what happens when you back one group's collective, in this case, racial bias, with legal authority and institutional control. That transforms that into the system. It, it becomes the default. It's not dependent on any one individual. And the best example I can use to illustrate that is women's suffrage. Uh, women were granted the right to vote in 1920. Prior to that, they could have lots of bias against men, uh, but they couldn't literally deny every man in this society his civil rights, in this case, the right to vote. But men could and did deny that to women because their bias was backed by power. And we have to reserve language to capture that. And, and I also, if I'm going to use that example, have to note, of course, that it was white women who were granted full access uh, by white men in 1920. We're talking with Robin D'Angelo. She's the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She's a consultant on issues of racial and social justice. And I think uh, many people get the notion that racism is like a virus and maybe no white people are immune because we live in a superstructure where so many of our institutions are hegemonic in one way or another when it comes to race. And white people live, as you point out in your book, in a kind of insulated cocoon in many respects. Uh, where do poor and working class people come into this, though? And where do they fit into the whole picture, particularly when you're talking about bias and racism? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> uh, I was raised in poverty, and I mean that explicitly. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, in fact. Uh, homelessness, uh, periods of living in our car, uh, periods of foster care. I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. I had a deep sense of shame. It took me that long to uh, go to college to feel that I could. And I always knew that I was white. I knew that it was better to be white and that being white is a large part of uh, what helped me navigate poverty and classism. I don't have less racial privilege because I grew up poor. Now, I don't have more either. I just learned my place in the racial hierarchy from a different class position than I would have had I been middle class, but I learned it. I, I could be queer and non-binary. I still have white privilege, and that impacts how I experience uh, my gender identity and so on. The, these are intersecting, inter, uh, as uh, race scholar Kimberly Kent Crenshaw has has taught us. These are intersecting identities. And what about, uh, let's take a case like uh, one that got a great deal of notoriety recently, Amy Cooper, a young woman originally from Canada who was in Central Park, and there was a 
African-American man who was uh, bird watching, a Harvard graduate, gay man, and uh, she uh, and he got into a bit of a tiff and she in effect menaced him with the thought that she would call the police. She being menaced by an African-American man, this lost her her job. It got her a lot of consequences, in fact. Um, there are a lot of white women, presumably, who would never have even thought of using that trump card or that privilege. Uh, can't, would you concede that? Um, no, because I, I don't know that they wouldn't. Uh, if you had asked her uh, before that happened, I'm wondering if she would have said she would have. She certainly said afterwards, I'm not racist. Uh, so Amy Cooper is actually a really great example of white fragility. Uh, she's also a great example of how quickly implicit bias actually moves to explicit bias. She knew what she was doing. Uh, she didn't wait until she got on the phone, which that in itself is, is a bit <laughs> uh, out there. But she didn't wait to describe him as African-American when she was talking to the police. She threatened him with that because she knew full well uh, that that would be a threat. Her expectation was that even though she was in the wrong, the entire system would back her up. And up until we had cameras, uh, and recently, I mean, it has. And, and actually, even now with cameras, it still is because we're still seeing uh, police uh, killings of unarmed black men, even in this moment. Well, you've said, for example, that whites generally don't seem to care much where, about racial injustice. And I'm wondering about that in light of the fact you have all these young white people who are out marching now. Andrew Young, in fact, recently commented that he'd never seen anything like it. He never would have imagined it or dreamed it. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, and I would also ask, what did it take? What did it take uh, to get a whole range of white people uh, out in the streets, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it took it took essentially the killing of a black man, uh, but nevertheless. Uh, well, more than one, more than yeah. one. It was kind I mean, of an, it was a, set up, particularly by what happened in Minneapolis. But you're right; there were certainly a number of black men who were killed, and goes back to this nation's history. And uh, the, the yeah, and let me say a little bit um, about uh, what you had asked uh, in terms of. Oh my gosh, I lost my thought there. <laughs> well, let Ask me get you back again. to something we were talking about a moment ago. That is, there's a notion here that whites can feel immunity, that they can feel they're ah, in a cocoon okay. and they're protected, insulated, yeah? Yeah, you would ask me about a, a statement that I made that I, I, it doesn't appear to me that most white people really care about racial injustice. I understand that's a provocative statement. I would be happy if people uh, proved me wrong on that. That has been my experience uh, doing this work for the last 20 years. I mean, if you look around the society, uh, I'm going to assume most white progressives would acknowledge uh, structural racism. And yet individually, most white people will say, I'm not racist. Uh, I, I have nothing to do with it. I mean, that idea that I'm not racist is not changing racism. Uh, we, we have to uh, come from a fundamentally different paradigm. And uh, it, it's kind of like these incidences are not new. Uh, they're just recorded now in a way that proves that they're happening because for all too long we didn't believe it you know it wasn't happening to us we didn't see it now we see it uh we still have to see a whole bunch of it uh in order to care and i'm gonna i'm wondering what might happen when the cameras go away talking again with robin d'angelo and uh She's the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, consultant on issues of racial and social justice. What about the effects? I'm wondering uh, your thoughts on uh, where cross-cultural uh, things are concerned. I mean, there are certainly a lot of young white people who would go out of their way to uh, show even preferential treatment to blacks to show that they are not biased or bigoted. And um, I've heard a number of African-Americans say that's another kind of racism, really, showing preferential treatment. Your thoughts? Well, it, I mean, it can, it can come across as a kind of objectification or exoticizing, right? A kind of over-smiling, over-extension uh, to, you know, still, what's at the root of it? I need you to know that I'm not racist. I need you to think that I'm not racist. Um, 
in my in my experience, most black people start from the premise, as do I, that of course white people have internalized racism. They have uh, we have a racist worldview. There's no way we couldn't. It's it's everywhere. We're born into a society in which it's the bedrock, and so when we overextend ourselves. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't come across as sincere or genuine. It's certainly not relaxed and, and it is uh, generated from a kind of racial anxiety and all of those things make it pretty uncomfortable. Uh, it, it, it would speak to that we may not have a lot of, of friends across race. We're not particularly relaxed and we're just trying a little too hard, which only ends up amplifying <laughs> that uh, sense that this person is different to you. Well, you say in your book that whites are maybe too comfortable and they don't even know how comfortable they are. And perhaps does that imply they need to be uncomfortable? And in what ways? Oh, absolutely. The, de the default of this society is racism. That's the default. It's not an aberration. It is the norm. It is reproduced 24-7, 365 through all of our institutions. And as a white person, I move through a society in which racism is the default in racial comfort. I'm comfortable racially virtually every day. It's, it's an exception for me to be outside of my racial comfort zone. I mean, really take that in. Uh, I live in racial comfort in a racially unjust society that benefits me. So we are not going to get where we need to go from a place of white comfort. We have to get uncomfortable. We have to get unsettled. And, and when we have some fundamental aspects of the way we think about the world and ourselves in it, it's going to get uncomfortable. So you say whites need to ask themselves a central question, uh, how have I been shaped by race? And what kinds of answers uh, have been telling on that score? Well, I think the most telling thing is, is how difficult that is for most white people to, to answer. I've been asking that question for 20 years. I uh, usually, you know, if I'm doing a workshop, they're in triads, they each get one minute to answer the question, which isn't very much. And so many white people can't even fill that minute. And that is not benign or neutral that we can't answer that question. Because again, if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. I'm gonna have no critical thinking on this topic. I'm gonna to have no skills to navigate such a nuanced and complex conversation. And I'm gonna have no emotional capacity to withstand the discomfort of that conversation, particularly if I feel challenged in it or by it. And that means that, and we'll, I'll just specifically for this moment say, focus on black people. That means that black people can't be their authentic selves with us. Uh, they know that we bring to the table, the table, by the way, that we control uh, with most of us with no critical awareness of our own whiteness. Uh, and collectively, that creates an atmosphere that is not particularly supportive when you're one of a few. Yeah, I think you point out that uh, you go all the way back to writers like James Weldon Johnson and W.B. Du Bois. They were able to see how they had to interact with white people because of the prejudgments that white people had about them. And in effect, you're saying, I think, that white racism is a virus. No white person is immune, and it takes a lifetime process to really uncover the nature and the nuances of that. Uh, and you're also saying something very damning, that white people are complicitous. Could you define that a little bit more for my, our listeners? Yeah, I mean, even if you even if your listeners will um, accept that it's a virus, my experience, if you ask each individual white listener, and are you racist? Have you been infected by the virus? Many of them would still say no. There's still that disconnect between the abstract concept and the ability to apply it to ourselves. And that is because we've been taught to think of what it means to be racist as someone who would intentionally and awarely seek to hurt somebody based on race. Uh, I call that the good bad binary. And I don't know that you could have come up with a more effective way to protect the system of racism than that simplistic idea because it makes being a good moral person and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. 
I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness. Because even now, of course, I am going to answer you that yes, all white people are complicit with racism. There will be umbrage and upset. People will uh, insist that they are not, that they are not racist, that I don't know them. If I knew this about them, I knew, I'd know why they were different from that. Um, the evidence that, that they will offer up will be rather thin. <laughs> I've traveled a lot. I speak lots of languages. I, I know some people. I had a Black roommate in college. I'm a minority myself. I mean, this is the kind of evidence that many white people use to exempt themselves from that system. And it's, it's not possible to be exempt from it. And actually, that's liberating. It's liberating to start from that premise, because then you can change your question from if uh, I'm complicit with racism, to which most white people will say no. And then what further, what further action is required from us if my answer is no? None. I'm not racist. So if we change it from if I'm racist to how am I complicit, that sets you on a lifelong path. Talking again, if you've just joined us with Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. And if you have questions for Robin D'Angelo, well, or if you want to uh, identify yourself as white and talk about how you've experienced, excuse me, <clears throat> and approach conversations about race, you can give us a call right now. Our toll-free number is available. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions to forum at kqed.org. And uh, Eric Michael Dyson, uh, in the forward to uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, calls her the new white sheriff in town. Um, you, you, have, you have the number one bestseller, and, and actually uh, your book, is ahead of Ibram Khan's uh, Kandi, who we had on, wrote a book about anti-racism or the book you want to talk about race. In other words, it's ahead of a couple of black writers who have written about racism. What do you make of that? Well, it does move around. I can, I, I can I'm tell sorry, you I said, that. I, my, um, Michael Eric Dyson. I said Eric Michael yes, Dyson. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And if you look at the top 10 books right now on race, I believe mine will be the only one. Um, but I am speaking as a white person to white people in a way that only I can. So let me be really clear. We white people will never understand what we need to understand about racism if we are not listening to black people, indigenous people, and other peoples of color. Uh, for but for all too long, uh, we have been missing from the conversation as if we are outside of race and they are the holders of racial knowledge, and that's problematic for many reasons. Uh, it reinforces the idea of white people as objective, as individual, as able to talk. Uh, just as humans for everyone and black people can just speak from a particular specialized and often biased perspective. Right? I'm very clear that black people understand everything I'm writing about, most likely to a degree that I never will. But as an insider, there is a, a way that I can name it that is harder to deny. And so to not use that platform, that, that insider, uh, that reality that I might be heard a little more openly, uh, to not use that for me would be unacceptable. I will hear from you, our listeners, when we return. Our guest again is Robin D'Angelo. Her book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Feel free to be part of the program. I'm Michael Krasny. Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Robin D'Angelo. She's the author of best-selling book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She's also a consultant on issues of racial and social justice. And if you'd like to join us on the program and be part of this conversation, we'd like to hear from you. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. The number again, 866-733-6786. And you can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or Email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Let's get right to our, your calls, and let's begin, Gavin, with you. Gavin, good morning. Hi. Hi. Thank you. 
Um, I want to first say I'm very happy with the conversation. It's something that we all, especially white people, need to have. Um, I'm wondering for the guest, though, if she can um, uh, elaborate on examples, modern examples and um, of white complicity, because I have a harder time picking up on social cues in general, and so it's just harder for me to see it in real life, I guess you could say, um, and on a day-to-day basis. And I was wondering if she could give some uh, tangible examples of, of white complicity going on in everyday life. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Gavin. Robin DeAngelo. First of all, we can look at the society at large and see that that racism is embedded, that it's happening at all, at all times. And then notice that most white people can't tell you what it means to be white. Most people couldn't actually articulate what uh, systemic racism is. Um, most white people don't know what's problematic about constantly going to black people in a moment like this and asking what they should do. Um, the silence when uh, our family members bring up, uh, say, racist remarks, uh, the defensiveness we have when anybody uh, challenges uh, a remark that we made, an assumption that we made that we're not aware of, all of that allows us to move through a society like this without in any way challenging it. Right, so, so we're going to go back to it's happening at all times, but most white people think they have nothing to do with it. So Edward Bonillo Silva has this great title of his great book, Racism Without Racists. Right? So we have racism, but nobody's racist anymore. Now, all of those things, and they, I know I'm going to put air quotes around subtle because they seem so subtle to white people, but they're not subtle at all in the collective impact of the climate they create. Uh, for people who aren't white, who are having uh, these experiences, but but can't talk to us about it without it getting uh, minimized or debated or invalidated. I think it's safe to say, uh, Robin, I presume maybe you would agree that when we were talking about a post-racial society uh, in conjunction with the civil rights movement or with President Obama, uh, that was illusory. And many people certainly realize that now. But I wonder what your thoughts are about the fact that we're a very cross-cultural country. I mean, in terms of being influenced by this extraordinary impact of uh, uh, on popular culture of black music and black filmmaking and black uh, writing and so forth. Uh, there's much more cross-cultural effects, in fact, and impact than we would have ever imagined. Well, and there always has been, uh, it, it has not been acknowledged as, as specific contributions, uh, incredible difference in uh, what people have been paid for their work, if they've even been paid at all. So it's been a very kind of extractive, exploitative relationship. Yes, diversity changes and impacts the culture, uh, but this system is highly adaptive. It has adapted for 400 years. It's still adapting so that we're at the moment we're at. We thought we were post-racial after the civil rights movement, or at least many white people said we're post-racial. Then we were post-racial after Obama's presidency. I don't think anyone's in denial now uh, that we are so not post-racial, uh, that, that history is not some arc, but more continual struggles and pushes and pulls that we can never be complacent about. The Voting Rights Act of, of 1965 is another example. It's almost been dismantled. Uh, gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, and, and, and on and on. And so to connect that to what the last caller had just asked is, um, I want to I bring up Ibram Kindi, who you mentioned. He's also uh, uh, on that list. He has the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and also Stamped from the Beginning. But that in a racist society, there, there is only uh, racist and anti-racist. There, there's really no not racist. There's no neutral place. We did an interview with Ibram Kindi, which is in our archives, and I'm going to read a comment by Pamela, who writes, I am white. I live in a black neighborhood in Oakland. Some of us are trying to break down the boundaries, and it seems to me that what you desire is for us to simply beat ourselves up. I truly 
do not believe your outlook and belief system serves the greater good. We are a multicultural and racial society that is not going to change any time soon. White guilt does not help. We need to learn to live together, not feel different. I hope one day, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, we can finally be one people. Okay, <laughs> glad guilt came up. I am clear that as a result of being raised in this society, I have a racist worldview. There's simply no way I did not absorb that. I have racist biases, I have racist behaviors at times, and I also have an investment in the status quo, which is racism because it's comfortable and because it has served me. It has impacted the outcome of my efforts and it has impacted my ability to manage the struggles that I do face because of course I face struggles, but not racism. And I, I don't feel guilty about anything I just admitted to. I didn't choose that socialization. I never would have chosen it. I wasn't given a choice. What I feel is responsible for the outcome of that socialization. How is that manifesting in my life? And if you're living in a neighborhood in Oakland that is diverse, it is most likely in the process of gentrification. And if you're insisting that, you know, we're all one and we just need to see each other as one, you know, it just reminds me of uh, standing by the side of a black man once and a white woman said to him, I don't even see you as black. And his response was, oh, well, then how are you going to see racism? Because I am black. I know that you see that. And I'm having a different experience than you are. And I want to give a quote from Pat Parker that I use in my book. She's a black woman. And she says, first of all, forget that I'm black. And I think what she means there is stop reducing me to that. Stop having everything be about that, have, having me only speak to that. And second of all, don't ever forget that I'm black and that I have a different experience and lived reality than you do. And that's the tension. And I don't see the person who wrote in grappling with that tension. I'll bring another caller on here. That's you, Jonathan. Thanks for waiting. Join us. Hi, how are you? Okay, thank you. Um, I, I just wanted to say that I, I think that when we boil issues down into uh, absolutes. All white people are racist. I think that's extremely offensive. I don't think that it's it's as simple as, you know, pun intended here, black or white. I think this is a very gray issue. I think in America, we come from multiracial, multicolored backgrounds. Uh, I don't know what you would call Barack Obama. Is he white? Is he black? Uh, you know, we have a whole stratosphere of different colors and backgrounds. And to say this is a white thing or a black thing, uh, you know, I, I look towards Dallas 2016. What happened to, to Tony Timba when he was killed in the same way that George Floyd was? He was white and nobody cared. And hey, Jonathan, I thank you for the it, call. Of... Uh, let me go to you on this, Robin D'Angelo. I mean, yeah. a lot of hybridization, was... a lot of multicultural identities in America, certainly. Yeah. So. Obama speaks to the socially constructed nature of race, right? You know, I'm with you. Why is he black and not white? If, if we're going to, you know, go, he has a, one parent who, of each. It is a social construction, but it is real in its consequences for our lives. We could literally predict whether uh, you and me and our mothers would survive our births based on our race. Yes, we are unique, special individuals. We're also members of a social group that is so profound uh, in, in, its, in its outcomes that we could make those predictions. We have to be willing to grapple with what that means. We seem to be able to do that with gender. I don't think anybody would say, why do you have to say that you're a woman, right? Why don't, I don't notice that you're a woman. Um, why is that significant? Well, we know that it's significant. Uh, we know that the way that gender is constructed, men and women, and I'm using cis terms here, but that those categories are profound in their uh, meaning and in the trajectory of our lives. So rather than think about it as either or, I think about it as a continuum. We are in a racist society. It's embedded in everything. Uh, and, and if you're not sure about that, then just think about the energy uh, we have about what schools our children go to. They're not equal. 
We know this. So rather than either or, yes or no, am I or am I not, I am on a continuum of more racist on one end and less racist on the other. And we move along that in any given moment. And again, that changes my question from, you know, if I am or am I not, to how am I doing in this moment, in this situation to challenge racism? We're going to go back to it's either racism or anti-racism. Well, the caller brought up Barack Obama and it prompts mm -hmm. me to ask you, I asked you before about class and where that figures into your equations and your thesis, but what about region? I mean, when you think about the South, you think about a history of slavery and Barack Obama would have, had he been born in the South, he was born in the United States, by the way, not in, uh, if he had been born in the South at that time, he would have been a slave uh, because of his black ancestry. Um, the North didn't have slavery, didn't have the institution of slavery. Isn't there a divide there along the Mason-Dixon line, historically? I, I, I would put us back into, into a, a manifestation, like different manifestations, different degrees. We're back to the outcomes that we have. You know, you had Ibram Kindi, and, and he, oh, he's, so, he's so clear and succinct. I'm going to quote him again. If you look at every measure and you see by every measure and you will, black people are on the bottom, then there's only two possible explanations for that. Either black people are inferior and white people are superior or racism. And if you are not acknowledging uh, structural racism, you are inadvertently saying there's something wrong with them uh, or they would be where we are. And, you know, Clarence Thomas can be on the Supreme Court. He can be quite wealthy and he can go out and try to hail a cab and not get a cab or he can be not recognized and you know have an incident like we're seeing on the news. You cannot talk about class without talking about race and race or dog whistle. Uh, politics has been an incredibly effective tool to manipulate the working class. So forgive me, re region, region also is immaterial here? As, as you it's see. just again, it's it's variations. You know, it, it might look different. The outcomes will be similar. Boston is in the north. Uh, the Boston Globe a couple years back did a very uh, complete review of racism in Boston. It might look differently than Confederate you know, statues in the South, uh, but it's still producing the same outcomes. Now, forgive me, but Boston had more problems with school integration than they had in the South, and the South uh, made a, uh, quite a, uh, uh, certainly put the spotlight on that. I'm gonna read some comments here. Great point. Uh, Liz says, I'm a white person and I consider myself an ally of people of color. Can you give some ideas on how to speak to family members who are not overtly, but rather complicitly racist and a kind of related question from Kate. We're talking again about the conversation here and how you bring these things up. Kate says, how do we bring up the topic of white privilege? How to initiate? Where do we start? Yeah. Well, let me say something about the idea of an ally. Of course, I strive to be an ally, but I do not call myself an ally. I don't even call myself an anti-racist white person. I say that I'm involved in anti-racist work uh, because that really is for uh, people of color to decide if in any given moment I'm actually behaving in anti-racist ways. I am the least qualified to make that determination, uh, the, the most invested in actually not seeing the ways I may be complicit. Uh, so I just wanted to make that point, but for, for those striving to be an ally, I'm always going to turn it back to you. That's just, that's just, I'm an educator uh, and I believe deeply that the more we can see what it is within ourselves, the more effective we will be at helping others. So what I would ask any white person whose question is, how do I talk to my family about their racism? I would imagine me looking you in the eyes and I would ask, how would I talk to you about yours? Read a comment from Vicki who says, I'm a white female retired psychotherapist who was shocked that none of my black clients were surprised at Trump's election. It led me to the kind of insights that are being expressed by your guest. I too have experienced poverty, food stamp and welfare shame, single parenthood, etc. I had empathy for black people suffering those things, but I came to understand that my experience of those things was as a white woman. Very, very, very different experience in many ways. And here's Karen. Karen, join us. You're on the air the show. I'm so grateful for all the work you're doing. 
Um, I've read your books and everything. So my question oh. is, I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been reading a lot um, in the past few years. I've been active in, in uh, uh, staying up for racial justice and sent my kids to a diverse school and have two white boys. And I've been talking to them a lot about what it means to be white, about systemic racism. And, and since they are a minority, um, a lot of what I'm hearing from them is they, they don't want to be white. Like, you know, I hate being white. I wish I wasn't white. And I tell them it's not, it's not their fault, right? It's, this is a system. We benefit from it and we can fight against it. But how do I help them to, to deal with their struggle with, you know, it's kind of like uh, because of the system, we suffer from it too. Not, not in any way near right. uh, others, right? But, but it hurts us as well. No, yeah, and I always comment. feel a little bit nervous around that uh, example like that because I know um, a lot, lots of white people who are resistant to what you and I are talking about. We might grab onto it. Aha, so you want white people to feel yeah. bad. Or, of course not. Of course that is not my goal. Um, that is not useful. Guilt isn't useful. Uh, shame is not useful. We are not effective in the struggle for racial justice when we're feeling those things. Um, so so I, I might work with them on how do I use that reality? This is the reality that I have a automatic set of privileges that others don't. How do I use that in a way that opens that up, that I can feel proud about the way um, that mm -hmm. I am contributing and what I am doing? And then some role models might really be useful. Uh, we don't have a lot of role models for white yeah. people. Uh, you know, who who we could strive for, that they could be kind of uh, beacons for them to reach towards. And, and it, the, to the degree that you yourself are not struggling with that, that is also a model. Let me thank the caller and go right to another caller. That's you, Paula. Join us. Welcome. Hi. You know, I'm in complete disagreement with this, that all white people are racist. First of all, there have been many examples in the artist community with jazz musicians that played together and that really started opening the eyes of people in this country that racism was an abomination. And I work, I have a business, Chile Lindo, here on the corner of 16th and Cap, and I talk to people, and I'll tell you something. If a Salvadorian gets her tamales and... and uh, uh, an entire container of Clorox poured over the tamales that have just been prepared by a Filipino, believe me, the Salvadorians start talking in a very negative way about the Filipinos. And I had once a black uh, DPT guy, he sees that I'm taking a load of heavy cream out of my car, and he turns around and gives me a ticket anyway. And I said, I'm about to move the car. I'm just unloading the cream. And he gives me a $120 ticket because, according to him, I was parked illegally. Does that mean all DBT drivers or all black people are like that? So racism is across the board. There's the, the, one of the most racist and uh, worst landlords in the mission are Indians from Indians and Chinese, from China. How can we continue speaking about people in such a degrading way because a statement like this does not acknowledge that we've come a long way, that we're making changes, and that the intrinsic nature to believe in your tribe and only give opportunity to your tribe has to be overcome because our tribe here in the United States is across races. You follow what I'm saying? I think we do follow what you're saying, Paul, and we should mention, I think, uh, that you uh, told our producer that you're of Chilean descent. Is that correct? Yes. My family's from Chile, and I was born in New York, and I don't know whether I'm Hispanic. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't look brown. You know, I feel a form. You, you know, in the end, it's an economic game here of how we divide each other into little categories to have political muscle. Paula, let me I cut in there and, and go back to Robin DiAngelo. I think uh, this idea that um, we're, we're, we're too divided and we don't need to be to see ourselves as too divided is really what Paula and many other listeners are saying. Uh, well, first, that, I want to just acknowledge the, the, the pain and anger that, that she's expressed. Uh, uh, those are deeply hurtful situations that she has experienced. I, I, I'm not 
saying it would never say that that is not real. And I am sorry that those things uh, have happened to her. I, I would call those things forms of prejudice and bias. When you look at the power structures of this country, and I, I do have it in my book, uh, by every Every measure, the power structures are overwhelmingly, we're talking in the 80s and 90s percent, white and male. And so I'm talking about the big picture that sets up all of this. Uh, and yes, economics are a key piece of it. There was an article by Jonathan Capehart in the Washington Post about you and about your book. And he said very forthrightly that you apologized to him, uh, a black man, uh, for the hurt and pain that he went through. Is this something that you generally recommend for white people to do where black people are concerned to make an apology like that? It actually made him cry, he said in print. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't outside of a relationship or, or, or a connection. Um, we, we just have to be really careful. We don't want to start just kind of performing these these acts thinking this is the right act to perform you know we had had a fairly uh intimate deep conversation for an hour uh he was sharing some of his pain um and i said to him uh, on behalf of myself and my people i, I apologize I, I am sincerely heartbroken uh, at the pain that has been perpetrated um on my behalf from my group towards yours. Um, Is this a group or are these people? You said my people and my group. My people, uh, I'm talking about white. I mean, I'm talking yeah, you, about so white people. So there's a kind of a tribal identity there, a, a total identity with white people? No, I wouldn't call it tribal. I mean, white white is a, is a constructed category, but again, real in its consequences. So on, you might want to say on behalf of white people or society, or even as a white person who represents... I'm not just an individual. I bring the history of my group to the table with me when I'm talking to Jonathan. And as a representative of that group, I wanted to say, I'm sorry. Um, and in that moment, that experience was so rare for him. He felt seen, he felt heard, and he was moved. But I wouldn't just suggest we do that without have done, and I'm uh, my learning will never be finished. And I, I still uh, do and say things that are problematic, uh, much less than I used to. But I have done a significant amount of personal work uh, and interpersonal work in my 20 years. So I, I, I wouldn't be comfortable telling white people to go forth well, and start apologizing. I, I that, think that's in the something book, you have to come to peace with. Yeah, as I can say, in the book, you say this is a lifetime process. Uh, mm. Let me bring another caller aboard here and... Uh, we're going to go to Daniel in San Francisco next. Daniel, join us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to make a quick comment. So there's all this talk about different discussions that white folks need to be having between and amongst each other in order to recognize the the the, the racist cultural that is the bedrock of this country, as your guest said earlier. Um, the, the problem that I'm having with that is that a discussion will only get you so far, and a discussion is not going to solve the problem. The problem is systemic white male racism at the top 1%. And until redistribution of resources is done and actual physical changes are made to the lives of black and brown folks, then discussions won't get us anywhere because a collective consciousness, I don't believe is possible at this point. Well, There's thank you for that, Dan. I'm, uh, that kind of cultural yeah. change. You're, you're talking about, uh, the, he's talking about the maybe where rhetoric and deeds uh, diverge. Uh, how, how important are these conversations about race? You do them all the time uh, in terms yeah. of really... Yeah. And Daniel, I absolutely hear you. And yet, when I look at the top, I feel immobilized. <laughs> I feel powerless, right? And, and that's not useful because, you know, that serves the system for me to give up. Uh, and so we can see right now, I mean, whether it's sustained or not, but we can see the, the power of the people uh, to push the culture forward, to start to create a climate and a culture where it's not as easy to get away with what has been gotten away with for a really long time. And we do have to start with consciousness raising. You know, most uh, all movements for social change and justice have had to start there because we've all been so indoctrinated. So yes, it is, it is meaningless to be aware and do nothing further, right? So sometimes people will say, 
oh, well, you know, I've read your book, you know, as a kind of like, so, so I'm not racist. <laughs> and my response is, okay, that's great. But how, how would people of color know you've read my book? Yeah, I, I have to, uh, to bring in an anecdote here quickly, because uh, mm -hmm. for many years, I've been a teacher of African American literature, and uh, a student came up to me as a professor and asked if I had a recommendation for reading, and happened to see Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. I said, mm -hmm. there's a novel you should read, and he looked on the cover, there was a black face, and he said, oh, I know all about that black stuff. Uh, I mean, there's a sense of a kind of... Yep. Uh, certainty uh, among many people. And I say many people, I use that advisedly. Let me read a couple of comments here. This is Kim who writes, I find this entire conversation racist. How did we get to the point where a woman in a New York City park cannot use skin color as an identifier when she feels threatened? How do you know she did not have an experience of being attacked? I want everyone to look in the mirror and accept their own bias, everyone. And Matthew writes, I've worked for decades in higher education where diversity initiatives are typically led by people of color. How can campuses engage white fragility when the work of equity is centered on an office without the resources to engage these discussions? Are we making it the work of people of color to do our work as white allies? Oh boy, okay. <laughs> Let me speak to these. Uh, just before you read those two, you mentioned um, the kind of sense that we know all we need to know, right? So it's, here's this person who sees a black face on the cover of a book and says, oh, I need all, all, you know, I know all I need to know about that. And this very person would probably say, and I'm not racist. You can't grow up in this, in this culture and not develop an opinion on racism. Everyone has one. That doesn't make it informed. This is arguably the most complex, nuanced social dilemma of the last 400 years. And our learning is not finished. We need humility. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Robin D'Angelo, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you with us on Forum this morning. Thank you. Robin D'Angelo is the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And we have another hour of forum right up ahead. We're going to talk about DACA. Big news this morning from the Supreme Court. Stay tuned for that. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.